Welcome in everybody to the study of First and Second Kings. We are in the deep dive tonight, Wednesday, 7.30. Make sure you're hitting that subscribe button. If you are new to the channel, we hope that this content is helpful to you. Like I said, Kings of Compromise, part 14, chapter 14 of First Kings. Gonna get real confusing with the parts and the chapter numbers when we cross from First Kings to Second Kings, but We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. First Kings chapter 14, the dark times of Israel reflect the dark times of our current culture. And we are going to see, and I'm telling you today, astonishing parallels between then and now. So with that in mind, let's dig into it after we pray. Sound good? Father, thank you for the chance to hear your word and to explore this content so that we might learn to love Jesus and follow him and become more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's go. Okay, like I said, 1 Kings chapter 14, not good times for the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom is divided. There is the northern 10 tribes led by King Jeroboam, who we have been talking about a lot over the last two episodes of the Deep Dive Bible Study. He has fashioned his own self-made, self-determined religious system. He has established his own altars, his own idols, and his own priests. And he literally opened up priesthood to anybody who wanted to be one. And that was the great sin of Jeroboam. To the south, Rehoboam, we haven't heard too much about him, the son of Solomon. He has uh, kingship over the tribe of Judah and somewhat the tribe of Benjamin. Again, Benjamin fluctuates between the northern and the southern tribes of Israel in the divided kingdom uh, era. Rehoboam, we haven't heard much about. We will pick up his story, or at least what's left of it, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 14, and then look at his progeny, who follows him. Because times are not good in the kingdom of Israel. They are led by immoral men, self-serving men, uh, prideful men, boastful men. And when you have prideful, boastful, self-serving men in leadership, it spells doom for the country. And maybe you can say, wow, yeah, tell me about it. Because we're kind of living in those days and age, that day and age today. So with that in mind, let's go through the text. First Kings chapter 14, uh, I call it the end of the Boehm boys. <laughs> the end of the Boehm boys, why? Because you've got Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and all the other Boehm boys, okay? What becomes of a nation is not determined by its prosperity, by its accomplishments, by its notability amongst all the other nations. What determines the future of a nation is how those nations are led. What are the determined values, morals, principles on which that nation stands? America has had a very long run of prosperity. Do we see Decay, yes. Do we see destruction in the future? Some say yes. I am one of those people who does say yes. Because the inevitability of every great culture is this. God is the judge. God, not USA Today, not the New York, New York Times, not Fox News, not CNN. God is the judge of every culture. And God is the judge of every life. And there is no escaping that no matter how much we want to hide from the judgment of God, it is ultimately going to come. Our third president, Thomas Jefferson, wrote these words in 1784. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. 
that his justice cannot sleep forever. Ironically, Thomas Jefferson wrote these words when considering the great sin of slavery in the United States in the 1700s. See, at the turn of the, well, about midway through the 1700s, the British Empire was abandoning the slave trade, abandoning slavery. They saw it for what it was, complete and total evil. It took a long time for the United States to catch up. In fact, it almost took, eight, it almost took another 100 years before the United States would put an end to the slave trade and slavery as an institution in this country. Ironically, Thomas Jefferson owned 200 <laughs> slaves. Over his lifetime, he only freed seven of them. We can go back to his writings and see his conflict, his imp internal conflict between fearing what ending slavery would do to the economy and to uh, the white man when you freed all of those slaves who had been so mistreated for so many decades and how much it was necessary to establish justice for all and liberty for all and live up to the principles of the Declaration, which he himself wrote. So you see so much of that in Thomas Jefferson. You see this internal conflict between what he knew he should have been doing and actually what he was doing. Isn't that true for all of us? Isn't that true for America right now? Is that true for you? I know it's true for me. Everyone lives between the person we know we should be and the person that we are. And the distance between who we are and who we should be is only empowered by grace. But I find that many people, many people, choose rather to go the way of Jeroboam. And here's what that is hiding, hiding from God, hiding from the reality that he is the eternal judge, not just of ourselves, but of our nation, of our culture. And here's the thing. Here's what 1 Kings chapter 14 tells us. You can't hide from God. So let's take a look at Jeroboam. When we last left off on his story in 1 Kings chapter 13, we saw God pronounce judgment on Jeroboam through a prophet from Judah. That uh, prophet ultimately died. We, we, heard, we read about that last week, about how no one is above God's word. When the prophet pronounces judgment on Jeroboam and his kingdom, the scripture says that Jeroboam reached out his hand and said, seize that man, seize this, this prophet who's prophesying to you, and his arm seizes up, and he can't use it. And then the immediate response of Jeroboam is, uh, heal my hand, pray to the God of Israel that he will heal my hand. And God does, God heals his hand. And yet in spite of God's miraculous intervention in Jeroboam's life, Jeroboam does not repent. In fact, he widens the qualifications of what it takes to be a priest, literally no qualifications to be a priest. He picks priests from amongst all the people. And this is a great sin because there is going to be one true priesthood, one true sacrifice, one true system through which we mediate between God and man. And that system is prophesied in the priesthood of, or priesthood of Aaron, and it is fulfilled in the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the true son of David. So Jeroboam is a picture for us. He is a picture of doing Christianity on my terms. We talked about this last week, talked about how many people do this. They, they are spiritual, not religious. That is just a, a statement that they make to say, I am going to believe what I want to believe, choose, pick and choose what I want to believe and reject what I don't want to believe, whatever doesn't feel right in my heart. Well, how does it end for Jeroboam? Because this is a, this is a warning for us. And the scripture is very clear, and it picks up the story here, for verse one of First Kings chapter 14. Look at how quickly the judgment comes. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Who is Abijah? Abijah is Jeroboam's son. Now, sickness in the ancient world was not common. There was no such thing as, oh, just a common sickness. Sickness 
most of the time led to death. Every sickness was serious. Every sickness was potential death. You, you did not have antibiotics. You did not have, um, and what else? Uh, 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 any kind of prescriptive medication to solve this problem, right? So in the ancient world, sickness literally led to death. This sickness, Jeroboam sees it. He's like, wait a second, this is my son. This, is, this not just threatens my family. This threatens the kingdom because this is my son who will succeed me in leading this nation. And this son's going to die. And we're going to see why this son dies and not Jeroboam's other son who actually takes the throne does not die. There's a reason for it. There's a picture for it. Let's get into it. Okay, so here's what happens. Here's how Jeroboam responds. The same way he responded when his arm seized up as he tried to uh, arrest God's prophet, Jeroboam acts the same way. Immediately turns toward the Lord that he is not interested in serving until he is threatened in his life. And so many people live like that. Verse two, and Jeroboam said to his wife, arise and disguise yourself that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who said of me that I should be king of his people. Now, now look at what happens here. This is interesting, isn't it? Jeroboam says, I, I want you to go and I want you to disguise yourself. I don't want the prophet to know who you are. You're my wife. And <laughs> I, I, I want to appeal to him to see what he's going to say. Amazing things are happening here, but let me finish reading it and then we'll talk about what those things are. Verse three, take with you 10, ten loaves, some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. Four things we need to see in this text. First, Jeroboam only seeks God when he needs something. This is a dereliction of faith. This is the worst kind of faith that you can have in Christ. You only go to him when life stinks. You only go to him when life is terrible. Now, will God hear you? Yeah, he'll hear you, but you might not like the answer that you get. And Jeroboam's not gonna like the answer that he gets from Ahijah. But it's not faith. It's not true faith when Jesus is only your fire escape. In fact, a lot of people think they're saved, but they're not because they think, okay, I'm just gonna believe in Jesus just in case. Just in case there's a hell. Wait a second, wait a second. That's not, that's not <laughs> surrendering your life. That's not following Christ. That's not living for Christ. That's not dying to self. That's just you know, the get out of jail free card in Monopoly. And a lot of people treat Jesus like that. That is not who Jesus is. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord of all, Lord at all, right? Now, I, 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 let me qualify something here. I am not a Lordship gospel guy. Uh, I'm not, okay? There are going to be several areas of our life that are not surrendered to the Lord as we walk the life of faith. That's going to be a progressive process wherein God works in us and we got to work out what he has worked in us. That's Philippians 2, 12 to 14. I get it. There's always going to be an area where we need to be sanctified. We need to have Jesus be Lord of it. I get it, right? But there are a lot of people who exhibit Jeroboam type faith, which is you're not interested at all in spiritual transformation. You're only interested in physical blessing. You don't want spiritual formation. You want physical um uh, advancement and uh, physical blessing in your life. That is the that is the faith of Jeroboam. Second thing about Jeroboam in this text is that he believes he can hide from God. And another picture of self-informed faith. I, I, I don't want to go to church because the day I go to the church, the place will burn down. As if that's the only place where God sees you. As if that's the only place where you are exposed before God. No, Hebrews says that, our, that everything is exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's Hebrews chapter 4. So the plan here from Jeroboam, a very, very <laughs> misguided plan, 
is to send his wife disguised with moderate provisions, 10 loaves of bread, right? And a couple of things, honey, jar of honey. You look like you're, you know, just kind of middle class or lower class and bribe the prophet. And interest, interestingly enough, this is the prophet that told Jeroboam he would be king in the first place. And then third thing that we need to see is that Jeroboam wants to know the future. Isn't that what we all want a little bit? We all kind of want to know what my future holds. And what Jeroboam is going to find out is that the future is bleak. And that is the reality for all of us, apart from faith in Christ Jesus, our future is bleak. Be careful of wanting to know the future, friend. Because apart, number one, apart from Christ, like I just said, your future is bleak. No matter how much you accomplish, it will be torn down and it'll be handed off to other people and strangers and you will die and you'll be judged for your sins. Okay, but secondly, for Christians, I, I don't want to know the future because I don't want what might happen to influence what I should be doing today. And this is what Jeroboam wants. He just wants to know that I'll have peace in the future. I want to do life on my terms. I want to live according to my terms. I want to follow God on my terms. And I don't want to live without knowing that I can get away with it. Really, that's what he wants. Okay, so finally, and the last thing that I want you to see is that Jeroboam did not go and seek the advice of his own priests, did he? He didn't. In fact, let me just go here for a second. Remember in chapter 13, this is so important in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Kings, in that Jeroboam made priests for the high places from among all the people, any who, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. Yet when the rubber hits the road and his son is sick, what does he say? He says, please go to Ahijah the prophet who said that I should be king over this people, Israel. Do you know what uh, Jeroboam kind of portrays here? Something that we all have to wrestle with. Deep down inside, deep down inside, we all know there is only one God. And all of our spiritual formations or all of our spiritual imaginations apart from God, we know deep down inside are a farce. And I want to say that even atheists know there is a God. They just refuse to acknowledge him. They live in denial and they, they love their denial. And I'm not saying that they are looking for God. No, they, they are not looking for God. I don't want to put thoughts or feelings into their heart. But deep down inside, I know they know there is a God. And Romans chapter one tells us this. In fact, I want to go there for a moment because so many of us are under the impression that mankind is innocent when it comes to facing God. And let me just, uh, let me just take this thing off of here. Here we go. Um, so what does it say about mankind? It says his in, for what, in Romans 1, 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. There, there is no one who does not know God exists. There is no one who does not know there is a God. And so here we have the king of Israel, uh, Jeroboam, saying, I want you to go to the guy who told me I would be king because I know ultimately that he is the one who speaks for God. And all these guys that I set up as priests, they're useless. Your spiritual formations apart from God are useless. You need the truth of God and only the truth that God can bring. Uh, it kind of reminds me, by the way, of a moment from America's recent past. Indulge me for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, or I want to ask you, are you familiar with this image? I'll just leave it up there for a second. Okay, if you're not watching the show, I put a picture of a recent football, NFL football game that took place in December. And coaches and trainers and players all surrounding one area of the field and surrounded by stone silent fans as what did they do? They were all praying. 
on the heels of the collapse of NFL star DeMar Hamlin for the Buffalo Bills a few weeks ago. Everyone prayed. Even ESPN commentators on television openly prayed and, and then were, were blessed or were praised for their prayer in that moment. Do you know what that moment betrayed? Deep down in the human heart, we all know there is a God and we all know that in times of desperation, we need him. Even Jeroboam, this wicked, evil king, knew there was only one true prophet. The scripture says further in Romans chapter uh, two, let's skip down here because this is going to give us some more insight into the human heart, regardless of whether or not we're professing Christians. It says, when Gentiles, verse two of uh, verse 14 of Romans 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Point that Paul is making, you cannot hide from God. No one can. And everybody knows that there is a God. You can play church, but you can't play God. And that is the first lesson that we hear here in first, uh, first Kings chapter 14, and we're going to continue on in the text. So Jeroboam sends his wife disguised to Ahijah, the prophet. And there's something about Ahijah we're going to learn, and it's kind of a picture for us of who God is and how we should respond to God and how we should approach God. We should approach God humbly because we know that he knows all things. But here's what it says. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus, you shall, thus and thus you shall say to her. This is incredible because Ahijah is given a heads up by God before Jeroboam's disguised wife even shows up before Ahijah. God is always, what we are trying to be, show, what, are, what, we, what God is showing us in this text is this. We cannot hide. Even as we try to hide, God exposes us. Even as Jeroboam is assigning his wife this weird task, God is revealing to Ahijah, his prophet, that this is happening. You cannot fool God. You can play church, you cannot play God. Then it says this, when she came, she pretended to be another woman, but, he, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. You cannot be someone you are not. You cannot hide from God. And that is a fundamental reality of the scriptures. And the sooner that we get there, the better for us, because that's when we can come clean before the Lord. Look, God does not expose our sin to shame us. He exposes our sin to heal us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, and then to draw us to himself. But Jeroboam wants nothing, nothing to do with that. He doesn't even really pray that God will heal his son. He just wants to know the future. He wants to know that, will I be secure in my waywardness from God? And the answer is no, a resounding no. God will not let that happen. He is, he is going to be held accountable for what he has done. Okay, going on, verse seven. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who are before you and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. That is an interesting phrase, isn't it? In verse nine there, and you have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's gone. This is a truth bomb over Jeroboam's life. It's a truth bomb. It does not get better. 
in the next verses. Let's take a look. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, and go to your house. And when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Let's, let's uh, table that for a second. We're going to continue reading, and then we'll go back, come back to verse 13. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in water and root up Israel out of the good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger. A couple things we're going to table for a second. First, we're going to table Asherim, which I told you already. Um, and we're not going to table anymore. Verse 13. Look what happens, by the way. Look what God says about this child for whom Jeroboam's wife is seeking peace. He says he's actually going to die and you're going to bury him and he will come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord. Isn't this incredible to think about the fact that God says, I'm going to judge your whole house. And notice what it says, that the dogs are going to eat. When, 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 when the Old Testament talks about the dogs eating someone's flesh who's dead, it is the sign of absolute abandonment by God. Because in the ancient world, and God is picking up on what the beliefs of the, of the people were in those days. He's kind of speaking to them. In the ancient world, you, they believed that if you did not get buried, if your body was not buried, you would not enter. Your spirit would not enter into the nether world. Your spirit would be lost and aimless for all eternity. That's how they believed. And so here you have dogs eating your body, which is the, um, the extreme of God's judgment. Dogs were unclean animals. Dogs uh, were a term of derogation. Today, we love our dogs. We worship our dogs in modern America. But in the ancient world, no, dogs were scavengers and uh, dirty animals. Nobody really cared for dogs in the ancient world. In fact, if you go to the third world today, the developing world, you'll still find that dogs are everywhere. They don't neuter them or spay them. And so they're everywhere. And they're just kind of gross and grimy animals. And so this is a picture of God's judgment. And then the birds of the heavens are going to eat up the people's bodies as a sign that God is saying, this is not just a temporal punishment. There is an eternal punishment for this act, for how you have formulated your own religious practice, your own religious spirituality, your own way of, I don't know, being a spiritual person, but you have not surrendered your life to God. You have not followed in his ways. In fact, scripture says that you have provoked him to anger, something that we do not want to talk about with, when it comes to God, but God is angry at the wicked every day, the scripture says. God has an anger toward wickedness, and it is a holy and righteous, perfect anger. It is an anger that is only satisfied through two things. Number one, God's anger is satisfied at the cross of Christ for everyone who is in Christ. That, that great hymn, modern hymn of the church, for, for at the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. I think it's called Cornerstone, if I'm not mistaken. I forget the name of the hymn. Maybe you can put it in the chat below. But anyway, that was a hymn that was written by modern hymn writers, and they submitted it to... The story of that hymn is that they submitted it to some, uh, a Christian publishing company to put it on an album. And they said, please, can you take out that term about the wrath of God being satisfied at the cross? They said, no, 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 no. That is theologically true. The cross is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are outside of Christ Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied against you in hell. And that is just fundamentally true and you don't have to believe it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I hate this because this is judgment. This feels judgy. No, no, no. This is just true. It's theology. It's what scripture uh, 
reveals to us about the wrath of God. There is a, an anger, a true and righteous anger of God's heart against unrighteousness. Now, the reason why that is so necessary is because if you're a parent, if you're a spouse, well, let me just say like this. If you care about any other human being on the face of the earth other than yourself at all, even yourself, you know that there are things that make you angry because it hurts those you love and care about. Well, that is what God's wrath is. God's wrath is holy anger against the things that hurt you or hurt others or hurt his creation. God's wrath is completely justified, by the way, in our own hearts when we see people sinning in ways that we don't like. But we don't want to, be, we don't want to face the anger of God in the things that we do like. See, and, and, and that's where Jeroboam found himself. He wanted to do life on his terms. He wanted to serve spiritual things in his way. And it led to a complete devastation, not only of his kingdom, but of his progeny, his, his offspring. And yet now let's, let's circle back to verse 13, because this is what I wanted to get to. And I know I've skipped around here for a little bit, but, but verse 13 makes it clear that the only son that's going to get a proper burial in Jeroboam's house is this son that's going to die, Ahijah. And it says that, that there is something found in him that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, what does that mean? First off, theologically, it means this. There is a fate that is worse than death. It, it, there is a fate that, that is worse than, worse than death, and that is eternal judgment. Eternal separation from God is a fate worse than, worse than death. Remember when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and God says, let's expel them from the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever in sin. To live forever in sin is worse than to die in sin. This is what God pronounces in Genesis chapter three. Can we go there real quickly here? Yeah, yeah, let's go down there and let's, because I, I like to show you guys stuff on the Logos cam. Uh, so it says this in verse 22 of Genesis three, then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he has taken. He drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So many things about the temple here that I don't have time to go into. But the point is that I want to just touch on here is that God drove Adam and Eve, Adam and the woman, out of the garden because he knew that it would be worse for humankind to live forever in a state of sin. That is what hell is. That is what hell is. So right now we are in an age of grace where God's eternal anger is satiated. And that does mean that there is a... A fate that is better than, uh, that is worse than death. And sometimes death is a mercy of God. Okay, some of you, you're like, no, can't accept it. Don't believe you whatsoever. Okay, just stay with me because we're gonna go to Isaiah chapter 57 uh, and take a look at how God speaks of judgment in this chapter. It says, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in uprightness. This is a picture of death. They rest in their beds. That is a picture of death. The, I don't know, I would say the nomenclature I would, add, I would, I would give to this text is sometimes God puts the righteous to death to forsake the wicked. This, this There is a fate worse than death. Sometimes, and I'm not, Please don't think for a second that I am saying to you that whoever died in your life, it was because God wanted to judge you and spare them. That, that, no, that's what I'm saying. This is a picture for us. 
that sometimes God in mercy puts people to death who are righteous because he's about to bring judgment upon a nation, a world. And, 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 and what happens in the tribulation? The righteous saints are beheaded in the tribulation. And we think that's tragedy. That's actually mercy of God. God is using the antagonism of pagans to spare his people from the worst of the tribulation that will come upon the world. So let us live, by the way, faithfully according to what Scripture details regarding death and life. There is a fate worse than death, and that is eternal separation from God. Okay, all that is what is happening here in Jeroboam's life. Let's go on to verse 16. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. By the way, right here, let's stop and say this. Our leaders lead us morally. A nation's leaders lead that nation morally. Jeroboam led the nation. He made Israel to sin. And then it's just another thing that you have to understand is that Ahijah is blind at this point. He can't see. And yet he completely sees the future for Jeroboam. This is God's word. The prophet is a picture of God's word. God's word may seem out of touch and blind to our day, but it is not. It actually has 20-20 vision over our life and over our future and over our standing before God. Okay, Jeroboam's wife arose, verse 17, and departed and came to Terzah, and then she came to the threshold of this house. The child died, and all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. God's word is instantly fulfilled uh, over the house of Jeroboam. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are all written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his father, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. Now, just so you know, this is basically the, uh, if you will, the refrain that you will see consistently throughout First and Second Kings going forward. You're going to see now the rest of the acts of blank. And how he blank, and this is what he blank, and so this is a refrain, very kind of musical, kind of rhythmic uh, statement here that you're going to see over and over and over again regarding the kings of the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. That is Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a picture that you cannot hide from God, even behind your self-made formulations of religious practice and spiritual reality. You cannot hide. No one can. Now the text turns to the southern tribe of Israel, the, Ju the tribe of Judah and somewhat of Benjamin and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. How was Solomon, uh, I'm sorry, how was Rehoboam compared to Jeroboam? Surely the son of Solomon would be a better option. Surely he would lead Israel more righteously and justly because of Solomon. No, remember Solomon at the end of his life, literally fornicated wildly, loved foreign women, had a thousand women that he was sleeping with constantly, worshiped at the high altars, built altars to Molech and to the false gods of the nations around them for the sake of his wives. They led his heart away from the Lord. And guess what, parents? Who you are is who you produce in your children. And that's exactly what we see here in Rehoboam. Verse 21, now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. By the way, a shorter time frame than Jeroboam reigned in the northern tribes. It says this, he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Judah did, was evil, did, Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more, and, more than all that their fathers had done. Okay, a couple things. Oops. Couple things about this text that we got to look at. Number one, uh, who is Rehoboam's mother? Naamah, the Ammonite. So right there, we're seeing the sins of Solomon, if infect his 
kingdom or his progeny, his offspring, because the Ammonites were not allowed in the nation of Israel because they were the offspring of who? They were the offspring of Lot and his daughter. Remember that ridiculous story in Genesis where Lot's daughters get him drunk and sleep with them and they have children. Well, one daughter has a son named Ammon and that is the Ammonites. He is the father of the Ammonites. And they were not, they were prohibited according to the law from assembly in Israel because God knew that they would infect Israel with idolatry. And that's exactly what happens. So Naamah might've been a very beautiful Ammonite and Solomon took her as a wife and then she had a child and that child was Rehoboam. So Rehoboam is from a mixed marriage. Now this is a picture for some of you guys who are single. Some of you single people gotta listen up here. This is a picture of what happens when you intermarry with different faiths. And please do not believe that you are above the law here, that you are exempt from the effect of an interfaith marriage. Now, some people say, and this is a common complaint against the scriptures, oh, the Bible is anti-interracial marriage, so therefore the Bible is outdated and racist, and therefore we can ignore the Bible. No, 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 that's not true. The Bible is not against interracial marriage. The, guy, the Bible is against interfaith marriage. In the ancient world, your, your race, your nationality, if you will, was your faith. You worship the gods of your ancestors. And so God said, no, you're not, Israel, you're not allowed to intermarry with them because they, are, they would lead your hearts away from me. And that's exactly what happened here. And Rehoboam is the offspring of a pagan and a formerly faithful Jew, Solomon. I have seen this in my life. I've seen this in my family's life. I've seen this in countless other lives. Young people get married to a pagan, a non-believer, because they think I'll get them saved and they don't get saved. And all it, does, all it ends up doing is producing a ray of in your life, a son who will follow the pagan rituals rather than God for the sake of your own peace, for the sake of your, your offspring and your grandchildren's sake. Please, single Christians, please keep yourself holy to the Lord in your search for a mate and say, God, I am making a stand right now. I'm making a statement right now to you and to myself that I will not enter into a relationship of romance with anyone who does not first love you. So anyway, let's get back to the text because there's a couple things I want to pick up here on this chapter, on this, on this verse. Uh, there is a couple things here that we've got to see. Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they provoked him to jealousy. They provoked him to jealousy. God's jealousy is a serious matter. We think of this in negative terms. In fact, famously, Oprah Winfrey testifies to the fact that it was the idea that God is jealous that turned her away from her Baptist upbringing. And she, she recalls that in the, in, the, in the moment of worship, there was a pastor who was saying, God is holy, and everybody was saying amen, and God is righteous, and everybody was saying amen, and God is love, and everybody was saying amen, and the pastor said, and God is jealous, and everybody said amen, and she said, wait, God is jealous? That doesn't sound right. I don't like the fact that God is jealous. Isn't jealous to see us in? And she says, in that moment, literally turned her away from the Baptist faith, turned away from Orthodox Christianity. It's kind of sad. And it's just a misunderstanding of what jealousy is. Jealousy when something is not your own is sin. But jealousy when something is yours is absolutely righteous. A husband has every right to be jealous over his wife's faithfulness. A, a father has every right to be jealous over his son's um, alliance or child's obedience. There is a godly jealousy. And by the way, when God is jealous over his people, it speaks to the reality that he 
is our owner. We belong to him. He is jealous for us. And you want that. You want God to say, you're mine, and I'm not going to let anybody else have you. In fact, that is a great security for our faith. That is not to be resisted. That is to be embraced. Ironically, Oprah Winfrey embraces all faith, a hodgepodge of somewhat Christian slash Buddhist slash atheist slash good person, moralistic, you know, therapeutic deism uh, of, of our modern age where she makes this amalgam of different faith traditions to uh, appease her own heart. And, and it's basically a picture here of that she doesn't want to be God's. She doesn't want God to have ownership of her life. Sadly to say, a lot of Christians are like that. A lot of professing Christians are like that. A lot of non-believers are like that. They do not want God to be in charge of their life. They want to be their own God. They want to be in charge of themselves. And that is exactly here what the kind of, the kind of faith system that Rehoboam instigates in the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, look at what else Rehoboam does. Rehoboam, believe it or not, the son of Solomon is worse than Jeroboam. So out of the two Boam boys, Rehoboam is the bad Boam boy. Let's take a look at verse 23. Here's what it says. For they also built themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. A couple things here. So many, so many good things, but so many important things to point out. They built for themselves high places. Those are altars that were apart from the altar in Israel, altar, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem. Pillars, these would have been stone structures. This is around the Iron Age, by the way, in human history. And so they would get stones and they would build pillars and they would worship them. <laughs> you got to think about how insane this is. But they would take stones, make a pillar, worship it. They would take um, metals from the earth, again, the Iron Age, and they would, they would fashion out of this modern, you know, technological achievement, metal, they would establish pillars and they would fall down and worship it. It's kind of a picture of what happens today, right? What do we value? What do we value? We create these things in our world, these silly little things that the future is going to look back on us and say, you really thought, like, you really thought this iPhone thing was like really like everything? Like you really thought that your Instagram account was everything? You really thought that this celebrity wearing a meat dress to the awards show was really that important? Like this is kind of a picture for us today in our day and age that every generation thinks certain things are important that future generations will look down on. And that's exactly what we have here. That's exactly what we have here in ancient Israel. In the Iron Age, they are making metal, metal pillars out of their technological achievements, and they are thinking, wow, we really made it, and they fall down and worship them. And notice how the scripture says, oh, oh by the way, let's just point out Ashram. Ashram was a, uh, another pillar that was made to represent a goddess, the Asherah, who was the consort of Baal. Baal was the most commonly worshiped pagan god of the ancient world. He was the God of fertility, the God of prosperity, the God of financial blessing. And his consort was Ashram. She was a female goddess who, if you worshiped her, you would be blessed. This is incredibly important for where we are right now because there's, there is this, we have a modern Ashram movement happening. I'm gonna get there in just one moment, but it says this in the text that they did this on every high hill and under every green tree. In other words, this was, this was everywhere. This saturated every fabric of the society at that time. Everyone had their own little pillar where they worshiped and they fell down and praised it as if they had arrived somewhere. They were important and they were blessed and prosperous. And there were also, verse 24, look at this, male cult prostitutes in the land. 
that is a absolute direct reference to homosexuality because male cult prostitutes were not sleeping with women. Women do not pay for sex. They never have had to. (laughs) Well, rarely have they had to, and they probably never will. It's always a tradition in ancient times and in our times that males pay for sex, whether that be with females or males, they pay for sex. So these male cult prostitutes, they were refer- is referring to homosexuality was rampant in the land. By the way, Deuteronomy chapter 24 um, uh, uh, condemns this practice. Deuteronomy 23 refers to this practice, prostitution, male prostitution, as the wages of a dog. Deuteronomy 23, 18. This is incredibly important. Listen to this. I, I, I tread lightly, but sodomy and the wages of a dog. I don't think I have to go any further. You understand what I'm talking about. The picture of scripture is showing us that this is homosexuality, men having sex with men. And God is going to condemn this upon the nation, condemn the nation for this. They did according to all the abominations. This is nothing new. Absolutely nothing new. So you have in the, in the times of Rehoboam's reign, the, we are talking nine to 800 BC, you have technological advancement in the Iron Age and people are fashioning things from their iron and metals to worship. Everyone is doing it. And there is homosexuality rampant in the land. These are the pictures of a decaying society awaiting judgment. Now, what did I say about ashram? They were what? They were pillars, wooden pillars or metal pillars that were representations of the female deity. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not going to believe what I'm about to share with you. I've been making this reference again and again in this talk, in this, in this season. What we are seeing now, we have seen before. So pillars to goddesses or female empowerment were being erected in ancient Israel. Guess what just happened? In New York City, a couple of weeks ago, I think, this is a statue placed atop a New York City courthouse. It's called the Now Statue. And you can see there is like this bronze-ish kind of female figure with this weird kind of tentacle arms and horns on her head. And she has been placed atop a New York City courthouse. I, I already referenced it's called the Now Statue. And it's meant to represent, you will never get, you will never believe this. This statue is meant to represent Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fight for the right to abortion access. And New York City commissioned it and paid for it with taxpayer money and placed it atop the New York City courthouse. Of course, what we are seeing before we are seeing, what we are seeing now we have seen before. This is an article from timeout.com. For the first time, a statue of a woman sits atop this Manhattan courthouse. And then the article describes it. Adorning the nearby courthouse now, an eight-foot-tall female figure resembles the park sculpture, but a lotus symbolizing wisdom replaces the hoop skirt. Her horns indicate sovereignty and autonomy. Every man did as he saw fit, basically. That's exactly what we saw in ancient Israel. A delicate collar nods at the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Gator Ginsburg, who often wore detailed collars with her traditional black robe. The statue, the only woman represented, sits next to figures such as Confucius, Justinian, uh, Lycurgus, I don't even know how to pronounce that name, sorry, Moses and Zoroaster. At last, this this work puts a female figure on a level plane with the traditional patriarchal depictions of justice and power. Wow. Oh, my friends, we are seeing 
Oh, we are seeing history literally repeat itself in our day. Never mind that back in 2021, the United Nations erected this, this hideous image in its visitor center. This is 2021. And the picture that I'm showing on the screen, if you're not watching, you've got to watch the YouTube channel because it's incredibly important that you see this. There are texts in the Bible that refer to this kind of image. This is the United Nations Visitor Center. The United Nations is a conglomeration of pagan nations that think that they're going to solve climate change and tax everybody to make sure that we lower the temperature by one degree over 100 years. And they literally had this image, this statue erected. Revelation chapter 13, verse 2 says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to the dragon... And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Uh, There is another prophecy in scripture that refers to something similar to the statue. Daniel chapter seven, verse two, Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Look at this verse four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I mean, yikes, yikes literally seeing scriptural prophecy come true physically on the shores of America, the most, pop, the most powerful nation on the earth, the most powerful city and the most powerful nation on the earth, New York, holds this ridiculous organization, the United Nations, which is an abomination. I'm telling you right now, the, abomin- it, the, the United Nations is an abomination. You need not pray for them. You need to pray that God will dissolve them, seriously. And they literally erected. Now, now, there was great outcry about this image. And a lot of people went the way that I'm going with this Daniel prophecy and Revelation reference. And so they took it down because it was, there was so much outcry. They took it down on December 20th of 2021. Well, well, even in their taking it down, they fulfilled scripture prophecy. Because look again at what Daniel chapter 7 verse 4 says. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of man was given to it. In other words... Its removal literally fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. It was lifted up off the ground. They, they removed it because of the outcry. The outcry is so strong. And a lot of Christians were talking about this as a picture for where we are. You know, there's this meme that floats around the internet that I just love. It kind of makes me laugh, but I just love this meme. I want to share it with you. It says this person squinting and bending over and squinting and saying, me looking outside to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. Like, that's where I think, I think that meme sums it up pretty well, my friends. What we are seeing today, we have seen before. Solomon famously says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. What has been before will be again. What is has been before. And, you know, the sun rises and also sets. I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter three. It's, it's amazing. And yet it's thrilling and it should be convicting. It should say to us, oh, wow. God's judgment is coming upon this nation. And I had better live not in line with what my king says, but what Christ says. He is my king, not the kings of this world. Back to the text. In the fifth year of Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. First judgment is what? The first judgment is economic disaster. And ladies and gentlemen, that is where we are as a country right now. Our country has hit the debt ceiling hundreds of times up to this point. And now it is crossing the debt ceiling for like the 30th time in the last five years. Our country is $21 trillion in debt. It's a joke. 
And someday this debt is going to be called. And we, our country, the economic system that we think we can trust in, is going to collapse. I don't know when, but our hearts better be right with God because this will happen. There's no avoiding it. You cannot continue to go in the way that you are as this country is and think God is going to bless it. So economic disaster, it's already happening. We've gotten like hints of it. And I think there's going to be a cataclysmic end at some point. I don't know when. It could be 200 years off into the future, but, but there are signs of it happening. Look what happens. Shishak takes away everything. He took away the shields of gold. Remember Solomon made those golds? We talked about them on the channel a couple months ago, I think two months ago. And he stored them away in the house of Lebanon. Well, Shishak just marches in and takes them. Like that's how quick riches can be dried up in the nation. Verse 27, a king Rehoboam made in their place the shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the house of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Look at the enhanced security measures that Rehoboam has to take to make sure that he can kind of maintain some sense of dignity and power, even though his kingdom is literally falling apart, crumbling underneath him. Like this is five years in and God's swift judgment comes in to undermine all the success of Solomon's reign. And ironically, it's Shishak, king of Egypt, the very nation that Israel got their first bevy of prosperity, now comes and takes away their prosperity. Remember when they leave Egypt, God gives them the, the, the jewelry and the fine things of Egypt the night before the Passover, and, and they take that with them, and now it's going right back where it came from. That's how quickly judgment happens in, in Israel's history. Everything Solomon's wisdom built, five years of King Rehoboam, is taken away. And then he, he replaces the, bron the gold shields with bronze shields because bronze looks like gold, but it's not. This is a symbol, ladies and gentlemen, a symbol of diminishing glory. The, the, the house of cars is being built up. In many ways, that is our country. Then again, the increased security measures. I think about our world right now since 9-11. Young people, listen to me, those of you who were born after 9-11, there used to be a time, believe it or not, where you could go to the... Uh, the terminal gate of your arriving friends from out of town and greet them as they got off the plane. Believe it or not, <laughs> up until September 11th, 2001, we did that. After September 11th, we had to, sub we had to surrender rights and, and freedoms to fly. Think about COVID. Before COVID, no one wore masks. Before COVID, no one even considered not going to work to stay safe and stay healthy. Now it's commonplace. Now they're even talking in some cities and states about bringing mask mandates back. It's amazing how when the country is judged, we don't look to God, just like Rehoboam. We don't look to God. We just put up this image of power, bronze, go, bronze shields instead of gold, and we take increased security measures because we know deep down inside, we have no security apart from God. This is incredibly Ironic how we are living in the times of Rehoboam and, Saul and, and Jeroboam. And many people are just ignorant of it. Verse 29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam. Again, here's that refrain. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in, with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. Now let me just quickly go over Abijam's reign because it's quick and it's no better. First Kings chapter 15, verse 1. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years. <laughs> Short reign here for Rehoboam's son. Three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom. That is, by the way, another name for another way to write Absalom. 
He walked in all the sins of his father that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father. Now, I only want to show you a couple things from the text here, and then we're going to close out. It says, nevertheless, verse 4, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Okay. God is going to spare or at least maintain a lamp in Jerusalem that light will never go out and it still hasn't gone out 2030, uh, what is it now? 3,000 years later. God is going to re- let a light remain and flicker in the house of Jerusalem because he promised, he promised that he would never truly abandon Israel. He would always keep their lamp lit and they still are alive in the land to this day as a testimony to the faithfulness of God's word. Let's continue on. We're going to close out here. Verse six. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. This is uh, the days of Abijah's life, Abijam's life. Okay. And then again, the refrain, the acts of Abijam and all that he did are not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam and Jeroboam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and Asa, his son, this is the one who will bring back some righteousness, reigned in his place. That's Asa, by the way, is the lamp, the lamp for that season where God will somewhat spare the nation and bring them back to himself as a sign of his mercy and grace to the kingdom of Judah in the South. This is a picture for us in Christ that there are going to be some times where the church is pruned and the church is judged and the church is uh, disciplined, but there will always be a lamp in the church because Christ will not give up on his church until he comes again. He is always going to hold his church through the dark times of human history. as He always has. He held his church strong through the persecutions of the Roman Empire. He held his church strong through the blatant apostasy of the Pelagian Pelagian heresy of the fourth century. He held his church strong during the rise of Islam and the warfare of Muhammad upon God's people. He held his church strong through the dark and the Middle Ages, the dark ages and the Middle Ages. He held his church strong through the abuses of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church and through the Reformation gave birth to a new and stronger uh, kind of church. And now as we've seen that church even wilt and and fade into apostasy. God has held his church strong through the first great awakening in the 1700s, the second great awakening in the 1800s, the Pentecostal charismatic renewal of the early 1900s. And I believe that we need another spiritual revival now where God is going to hold his church strong. And my, my point is that there's always going to be a lamp, friend. There's always going to be a lamp for God's people. He will not abandon us. And in spite of all the wars, in spite of all the conflict, our great faith is not in our kings and our Congress people and our senators and our presidents. Our great faith is in Christ who will not abandon us, who will not give us up because he promised never to leave us and forsake us. And God always has a people reserved for himself. Okay, that's through the text. Let's tap into truth. Couple things I want to share. Number one, uh, based on Jeroboam's life, you can try to play church, but you are the only. But the only person you're fooling is you. You can try to play church, just like Jeroboam tried to play church, try to play religious dress up with with his wife. But the only person he was fooling with is himself. This is the lifestyle of Jeroboam. And when things went poorly, he sought God. Otherwise, he was uninterested. You got to check yourself here. This is asking us to say, wait a second. Do I worship God for who He is, or do I worship God for what He can do for me? And relationship with God, living as if Jesus is Lord is not seeking him for what he can give you, but seeking him for who he is. One very common theme in scripture from beginning to end 
is sin is exposed. Nothing will be hidden. In the end day, nothing will be hidden. From Adam and Eve trying to hide in their sin, to David's sin with Bathsheba, to Peter's denial of Christ, there is no one who will be able to hide from God. Now, this is good for us to know, even though it might pinch a little bit. But Matthew chapter 10, verse 30 says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 44, 21, he knows the secrets of the heart. The best thing you can do with God is not to pretend or hide. The best thing you can do is come clean. Come clean with God because God is not interested in condemning you. He's interested in saving you. He's interested in redeeming you. First, first John chapter one says this, if we say, verse eight, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But look at this next promise. If we confess our sins, if we come clean, I can't hide from you, God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then this idea, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to understand that the standing before God for mankind is condemnation, whether they enter into a church or not. Some people say, oh, I, I hate going to church because I feel condemned. Sorry. I hate going to church because I feel condemned. Um, no, it's not the church that condemns you. It's your own heart that condemns you. And you stand condemned regardless of whether you're in church or not. Let me just show you a passage that, reve that reveals that. A very famous passage in scripture. Oops, sorry. For God, this is John 3, 16. For God did not, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the, but, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Look at the next verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. I don't say this to hurt you. And I don't say this to hurt anybody. That overwhelming sense of dread of death is because apart from Christ, you now stand condemned. You stand condemned. And you do not have to agree with me to feel that and to believe that. You can completely dismiss me. It's not going to change the reality of your human heart apart from God. Because it's not my word, it's his word. I, you don't have to prove yourself to me. You don't have to get my forgiveness. You have to get his. And, and he wants to forgive you. He loves you so much he gave his son to you so that you would not feel that condemnation. This is the benefits, by the way, of God knowing the secrets of our hearts and, 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 and asking us to reveal our sins and to come clean. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, you can't hide from God. He's in charge. He's absolutely in control. What do we learn from Rehoboam? We learn this. Idolatry impoverishes us. That's what Rehoboam realized. His gold shields became bronze shields. His riches and treasures were taken as quickly as that. Like Shishak just comes in and takes it. By the way, there's a whole history there behind the narrative of 1 Kings chapter 14, where Shishak actually uh, made war in 150 places plus along the southern region of Judah, and it was a very bloody war. So the, the scripture kind of just quickly refers to it, but it was a long drawn out, you could almost talk about like the Afghanistan war that our country just went through, a long drawn out costly war that literally robbed that nation of its prosperity. That's what happens when a nation abandons God. That's what happens when you or people abandon God. Idolatry impoverishes us, impoverishes us, not just financially, but morally and societally. The same things that we see in ancient Israel. 
the idolatry of feminism, the idolatry of sexuality, the idolatry of money, same things we're seeing today. And it just goes like that. Proverbs 23 verse four says, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to resist. When your eyes light on, on riches, when you set your eyes on riches, they are gone suddenly like, a, like an eagle. They just sprout wings and fly away. And the point that I wanna just draw out here too, that the things that our age right now is calling progress is just regress. We're not progressing, we're regressing into the ancient practices that God forbid then and does so today because they are destructive to us. This is the, the theme of this year in the deep dive is what we are seeing now we have seen before. And then, and then a couple more things that this text is teaching us. Personal godliness is far more important than personal achievement. No matter what we build, no matter what we acquire, no matter what, no matter what we gain in life, that really does not matter on the, on the scales of God's measure. What matters is, is our heart toward God, which means the last thing I want to share on tapping into truth is this. The most important thing that you can have is a heart for God. What does David say when he sins? Look, I understand. We all sin. We all feel that condemnation. What do we have in our favor? We have the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of Jesus Christ. Create in me a clean heart and, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51 verse 10. And when we confess our sins and come clean, God makes a promise. It's the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I'll be your God. This is the promise of God's grace. Don't hide, come clean. Don't follow the crowd, don't follow this world. It's destined to perish. Set your heart on God. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. Follow him and he will change you from the inside out. Thanks for being here, guys. If you can support the channel, do so. If it's helpful to you, I appreciate it. You help us get uh, advertising out about the channel and you help us uh, continue to grow the channel. The 10 Questions with Tim will be the only show we do next week. So make sure that you are submitting your questions now. The earlier you submit your questions, the more likely they will be read on the show. They are anonymous unless you share with me that you want me to know who you are. So ask at timhatchlive.com or in the comments below that they're probably not anonymous that way. If you can like and share and subscribe to the channel, that helps also the channel. The likes really help the algorithm. And just being here tonight was an absolute blessing to me. I pray that this content has blessed you. Maybe it's challenged you and convicted you. But ultimately, I hope that it causes you to turn to Jehovah, turn to Jesus Christ, who is healer and forgiver and cleanser of our sins. May God bless you. Have a great night in Jesus' precious name.